Hello, and welcome to Stern Chats. I'm Justin Catches. And I'm Stephen Avila. Steve, how you doing, man? I'm doing pretty well. It's another beautiful day in the Stern Chat studio. That it is, and I am super excited. This week, we have a very special guest joining us in the studio, Dean Raghu Sundaram. He was appointed Dean of Stern this year, following 20 years in the finance department and two years as the Vice Dean of MBA programs. Yeah, he's a pretty impressive guy. You know, he's well known for his role in bringing innovation to higher education. As Vice Dean, he helped to launch the first fintech specialization in the country, the one-year MBA programs in both tech and fashion and luxury, and the executive MBA program in Washington, D.C., amongst others. Not too shabby. And he also just happens to be a brilliant mathematician, the author of two books, and the first professor to receive Stern's Distinguished Teaching Award. Very impressive guy, very impressive resume, very excited to talk to him. But as always, this episode was only made possible with the help of our associate producers, and we are so excited to have Jamie Kiros in the studio. Jamie, welcome to the Stern Chats podcast. Thank you. Thank you for all your help in this episode. Introduce yourself to our Stern Chats listeners out there. Sure. I am from Alexandria, Virginia, right outside of D.C. I went to school at William & Mary and then moved to New York. I work as a literary manager at a Broadway production company, and I'm a Lingoon student here. What brought you to Stern? I am interested in getting into producing, and I love the arts and theater, and that's what I've always worked in. Um, It's also just the business of it makes no sense. And when you do it, you fall in love with these projects, and you're really passionate about them, but the business of it is so hard, and I'd love to get a better sense of how it can work. So, Jamie, you got a chance Mm -hmm. to speak with the dean. How was it? Um, He was a blast to talk to. I loved hearing his stories about first moving to New York in the 90s. I loved hearing his vision for the school and hearing him talk about inclusivity and his his commitment to new programs. So I think it should be an interesting chat. Can't wait. Steven, you ready to get started? Let's get right into it. Stirn up the volume. Cue that music. University Stern Campus, this is Stern Chats, the podcast that tells the hidden stories between the lines of someone's resume. In the interest of serving the Stern community, building relationships, and unlocking important life lessons, we present these stories to a wider audience. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Stern Chats. And this week, we have a very special guest joining us. Dean Ragu Sundaram. Dean, thanks for being here. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Welcome to the studio. We're very excited to have you. And welcome to the Stern Chat uh, environment here. It's pretty nice, isn't it? Thank you. It's fantastic to be on the show. And it's the studio is amazing. So you just became our, our new dean January 1st. Congratulations. Thank you. That's a big accomplishment. Um, and we're super excited that you could join us and have a conversation here. Uh, it would be great if you could just introduce yourselves to our listeners. 20, 30 seconds. Who are you? Thank you. Uh, hi, everyone. I'm Raghu Sundaram. I'm the uh, newly installed dean of the Stern School about three months ago, as of Jan 1st. Long-time uh, member of the Stern community and of NYU. I've been here since 1995, January, and I've been a professor of finance uh, during that period. Before I came here, I was at the University of Rochester for six years and did my PhD at Cornell in economics. I originally come from India, where I grew up and did my undergrad and MBA degrees. That was a great elevator pitch, by the way. That was, I'm sold. <laughs> we wanted to start all the way at the beginning, before you were dean, before mm-hmm. you were a professor. You grew up in India, I believe. Mm-hmm. That's correct. Um, so what yeah. was a young dean syndrome like growing up in, in India? Oh, I think just a typical kid, typical nerdy kid. You know, it was uh, pretty good academically. And like all kids who are good academically, I desperately wanted to be a sportsman 
had zero hand-eye coordination. <laughs> tried my hand at cricket, tried my hand at tennis, tried my hand at table tennis, then realized it was not to be. <laughs> so I even tried becoming a cricket commentator instead, and that also did not work well. Okay, so, so you have some experience behind the microphone. You no, I, I can't quite. <laughs> I, I wish. Yes. And More my fantasies. So you said you moved to the United States when you were 22 years when old. I was 22. What prompted that decision, and what, you know, what, what encouraged you to make the way here? I, uh, it, it, it really was a very, very, very simple decision. I uh, was very clear in my mind growing up that I really wanted the life of a professor. And uh, the U.S. had, has, and I think will have in the foreseeable future an academic system that is almost unique in this world in terms of both the opportunities it offers, the range, the breadth, the diversity, freedom. It's, it's just an amazing, amazing system to be part of. So it was an irresistible draw. So I did my MBA partly as I went to India's most elite business school and it was partly an issue of trying to find out whether there was something, my, my, my dad ran a company, I wanted to find out if there was something about the corporate life that I would actually like. There was lots of things about this company that intrigued me. I used to participate in a lot of discussions growing up, mm. but I figured that I, I'd like the academic life more. That's really interesting because I feel like as kids, you know, people want to be firefighters or policemen or professional athletes, which you, you had, but... At some point, you made the decision, I want to be a professor. I want that life. What kind of led you there? Was it, was it something that your parents had instilled in you? Was it just being you know, in love with education? Kind of how, how did you wind up there? That's, that's pretty interesting. Oh, God, no. My dad was a typical, very typical CEO who considered professors, looked at professors with suspicion. He said, like, you know, to him, the only real people were those who made money. But they were very supportive. They were puzzled by why I wanted to do a PhD. I was the first person in my family to talk like that. But um, I think they were very supportive. To me, I mean, I could not imagine a better life than somebody be paying you to come and think about what you want to think about, work on what you want to work on. It, it, it was amazing, the, the, the prospect of having no real boss, no real subordinates. You're on your own. You control your own time. That freedom of time. So in this world, there are two resources we all, we all lack, right? Or would like more of. More money and more time. This profession gives you control over your time, which is something incredible. I don't have either of those things right now. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you're a stern MBA. You'll, you'll very rapidly have one. And I hope you'll remember us when you do. <laughs> you know, like. Good plug. So did you have siblings growing up? I have a sister who's uh, two and a half years older than me, a brother who's five and a half years younger. They're exactly eight years old. So you are the middle child. I'm the middle child. And and where do they where do they end up? So my sister is a what in India we call a chartered accountant, what here is called a CPA, mm. married to another CPA. She lives in India, and my brother is a partner at Goldman Sachs here in New York. Oh, nice. So do you get to see him a lot? Oh, yeah. We're very close as a family, all three of us. And so, yeah, I see him quite quite a lot. Not as often as one would like after, you know, lives, our professional lives are quite busy for both of us. And But our children are very, very, very close. So that helps a lot. Yeah, absolutely. And so you make this decision to come to the United States and mm -hmm. pursue a life in teaching as a professor. What's the first topic and subject you kind of fall in love with? And what was your trek as, as you first moved here to New York? So that was uh, also, I think, a reasonably easy choice. I, uh, I was very good in mathematics in, in, in school. I realized fairly early on that while I was pretty good by normal standards, I did not have that extra spark that it takes to be a real mathematician. I like to play one on TV. So <laughs> what that meant was I had to find ways of applying mathematics. And the other thing that intrigued me significantly growing up, not unnaturally, was I grew up in a country that was 
then extremely poor. It's still a poor country, but it was extremely poor growing up. One was always intrigued by the question of why countries develop, why some countries don't, why some companies do well, why some companies don't. So economics was something that I was naturally interested in. And somewhere along the line, this combination of mathematics and economics led me to my PhD days and beyond. So did you realize that as a kid or is this through college and through your PhD in no, India? Takes, uh, those are pretty profound statements. I mean, I was concerned with like Pokemon when I was a kid. So, <laughs> so I did warn you that I was a sort of nerdy kid, but I wasn't that nerdy. <laughs> uh, so I, I found a lot of time to try my hand at cricket and fail. I found time to try my hand at tennis and fail. I failed at lots of things, but I was very fond of reading. I read extensively. I read widely. So there were lots of things I was interested in. Um, had I had the opportunity to do my undergraduate in the US, I have no doubt in my mind what I would have done. The two subjects that interested me the most were mathematics and philosophy. But the idea of doing an undergraduate and choosing your major doesn't exist anywhere else in the world except in America. So in other countries, you enter into an undergraduate major when you join the undergraduate. That was the point where I was making, more or less making a commitment. And that's how it is in most countries, right? You, you do mm -hmm. your undergraduate in a subject. So I entered into my undergraduate in economics and never regretted it. So you first came to NYU from the University of Rochester, mm -hmm. where you had been working towards your tenure. Mm -hmm. And uh, we wonder, you know, what brought you to NYU and what made you stay? And that must have been a, a fairly difficult decision considering you were so far along in that tenure process at, at Rochester. Yeah, I was actually tenured. But, I, I, you know, it, again... Like most decisions in my life, the decision was actually a simple one. I, when, I, when I finished my PhD at Cornell, I'd worked in this area called mathematical economics, decision theory, game theory. I continued working in it when I joined the University of Rochester, which was then a top 10 department in economics. I think it's still a pretty good department, but it had a particularly good reputation for nurturing young faculty. For example, they had the notion of a junior sabbatical, where they give you a, year, a, a semester off in the middle of your uh, assistant professorship to try and... Uh, improve your research. So I went to, I visited Caltech during that year. They were wonderfully supportive environment and things went extremely well and I got tenured and I realized that I'd lost my interest in the subject. So just as things were going extremely well professionally for me, professional interest was waning. On the other hand, I came to New York City for the first time in November of 1984, three months after I'd come to the U.S., Five minutes in the city, I fell in love with it, and I said, this is where I want to be. Incredibly, in 1994, the year I got tenure, those interests coincided because I happened to be in New York by, by just happenstance to give a talk. And I ran into somebody from the finance department. We had a nice chat, and he said, why don't you come and visit us? So I told him, I don't know anything about finance. Are you sure you want me to come? <laughs> I didn't even know what people in finance studied. And he said, yeah, but we don't know anything about you either. We learn about each other. Just come. So I came. I taught finance for the first time, fell in love with the subject. I've always been in love with New York. So you taught finance without any finance background. How, how did that work? Um, you know, it's one of those things that only somebody who's brash and young would try. I'd had, <laughs> I'd had a great deal of success in my economics career very early, and I figured that, you know, I'm, I'm a really smart guy. There's nothing I can't do. I'm a mathematician. So, so somebody comes and tells me to teach finance. I said, yeah, sure, why not? <laughs> and then, my God, I realized what I'd gotten into because in my first semester here, I taught a full course to the undergrads, a half course to the MBA students, and a half course to the PhD students on uh, derivatives. 
I promise you, I did not know what a derivative was in December and I was starting going to start teaching in January. <laughs> so I got hold of every textbook I could find to teach something at the undergraduate, graduate and PhD levels. I spoke to everybody I could on Wall Street. I wanted to sound intelligent and smart in the classroom. And I think there is nothing like the fear of making an idiot of yourself to motivate you. <laughs> it's a strong motivator. I learned the subject really, really, really well. So you took and a crash course on finance to be able to teach finance a month later. Yes. And no, actually, that, that's too much. I, I, over that month, I learned enough to teach the first month. After that, I was, it was a week at a time. <laughs> and uh, I would say I was, I learned the subject, the, what I was going to teach in May, only sometime around March or April. I was about a month ahead in, in, in my learning. But, but yes, I was learning on, on the job. Wow, very impressive. So I have to ask, how were the reviews for those classes? I've never gotten better reviews uh, in my MBA <laughs> class. My MBA ratings, I remember, were a 6.8 and a 6.7. And uh, that's out of seven for our listeners. Is, so excellent so, job. Hi, Marks. You know, there is nothing like fear to motivate you. You know, it's So you, you moved to New York City. At this point, you have a family and you're in the midst of New York in, in the 1980s. And all this excitement of your new job and your, your career here at, at, at NYU. Walk us through that of life in New York City uh, during that time. So there was there was an oddity out here. So when I, I, my, I, my daughter wasn't born yet, so it was only my wife and me. And I had come to New York on an average 10 times a year over the preceding decade since I'd come to the U.S. in 1984. And as I told you, I was in love with the city. My wife was not in love with the city. She felt unsafe wherever she traveled. This was an incredibly dangerous place in 1984. You could get mugged anywhere, anytime. She felt Washington Square Park. Washington right. Square Park on the subway. So she felt un so when I wanted to visit New York, she was against it. When I told her I was going to resign my tenure, which I'd worked for for six and a half years, I was going to start an untenured job. She thought I'd lost my mind. <laughs> <laughs> and first you want to live in New York, then you want to give up your tenure. You know. So six months later, I'm happy to say that she was as much in love with New York as I was because New York had become hugely safer over that period. This is the early Giuliani years. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was phenomenally enjoyable. I think the f partly it was the excitement of learning something new. Partly it was the excitement of living in New York. Just everything just seemed to come together really well for the first year or two in New York. So a lot of students are moving to New York for the first time to pursue mm -hmm. an MBA here. Was there something about New York that kind of fascinated you or surprised you when when you first came here? You know, I've, I've traveled to a very reasonably large number of cities around the world. I've never been to a city where you felt at home from the minute you stepped off that you belong. Mm -hmm. I don't think any city gives you the feeling that everybody belongs the way New York did to me. So, you know, um, so my first three months in the U.S., I'd spent at Cornell in Ithaca, New York. I'd also spent a couple of weeks in uh, Chicago and uh, Illinois before that just acclimatizing myself, staying with a friend. And Cornell is a lovely place, don't mistake me, but it was a culture shock to me and even a weather shock. You know, I'd, I'd come from a tropical country into, even by November, it was much colder than anything I'd experienced. It's snowing in April. Um, yeah. Yes. Well, yeah, this year, but you know. <laughs> but you know, so you come to New York and suddenly everybody around you has a non-American accent and suddenly you feel that everybody is an equal stranger out here and everybody belongs. And you, the range of the variety of people you see in just one block in New York is just astonishing. 
truly the capital of the world as it started calling itself then and i fell in love with the city then never okay there are that's that's too much for an exaggeration there are times when you really need to leave the city to retain your sanity um <laughs> oh yeah the, the city's known to beat you up over oh a period of time but you keep coming back for more yes it wears you out but on the other hand every time you're out of here you miss it enormously so in in the time that you've been in new york we've seen the city change dramatically and i imagine the university has gone through its own uh fits of change can you comment on that of just some of the changes that you've seen in your time here at nyu i think it's been a fantastic period for the city for the university for stern all in very very different ways the city of course in the 1990s when i came here was just coming out of a period of fairly significant amount of crime there were over 2000 murders a year i remember at the time that six murders a day the city was generally unsafe in most parts this area where nyu is was pretty unsafe you walk through washington square park and there were people offering you coke as you walk through it it was i'm not exaggerating very much when i say it was like a drug heaven and it mm-hmm. was a very unsafe place in general so this change in the city which took place in my early years here was i think the happiest part of moving to new york subsequent to that of course the university in the 1990s was just coming out of a period where it had started to establish itself as a national university as opposed to a local commuter university so in 1995 i think it was march or so of 1995 the new york times had a front page article this was the, still the days of phys- when people only read physical newspapers there were no internet newspapers <laughs> they had a huge front page article on nyu which talked about the rise of nyu and said this is the first time in 30 or 40 years that a university had come out of nowhere to big challenge the very top universities and it was lovely to read that but you look at where nyu is today to where it was in 1995 and we've traveled an enormous distance uh, ahead the times was actually prescient in anticipating what was going to happen to nyu this was way before the era of the global network university it was so at that time nyu had a few places that were strong the the law school the medical school the business school the economics department the current institute of course was always fabulous the institute of fine arts but much of the other rest of the university was not anywhere near as good as it is today the gnu was not even a glimmer in anybody's eye universities come an incredible way this was long before it started being ranked as the most uh, what i forget what it is the dream university on the princeton review year after year so the universities come an incredible way and stern i mean the changes in stern have been equally profound so when i came to stern in late 1994 we had just moved to this new building i think a year or two earlier so i've never seen the trinity place uh, building but it was a different world finance was booming wall street's integration with the academic world academic finance was just was proceeding very rapidly sales and trading jobs were the bread and butter jobs for our students it was a very different world today you look at the fact that amazon is our number one employer two and four are consulting firms deloitte and mckinsey and you look Both at how which far are represented here yeah ironically uh, enough justin will be at amazon and i'll be at mckinsey over the summer fantastic congratulations <laughs> to both of you that's <laughs> terrific you. thank you it's really wonderful thank you so we've come an amazing way in the last uh, two decades or so and every bit the city is evolving the university is evolving the school is evolving so you you mentioned that you know finance uh, center you know in the 90s and throughout your tenure here you know you've been involved in a lot of innovative projects 
you know, some to list a few, you know, you've helped launch the fintech specialization, the one-year MBA programs in tech and fashion and luxury, uh, the executive MBA program outside of New York. And what is the strategy behind that of, you know, opening up the school beyond a finance school and your thoughts on that? So I think that there's a many, many different strands of thinking that go into those things. But let me uh, first of all mention that NYU as a university, Stern as a school, have a very, very, very long history of innovation. So, for example, just thinking about Stern, we introduced a degree in business analytics almost a decade ago when the word business analytics did not exist in the popular lexicon. Now everybody has programs in decision science and, di- di- and business analytics and data analytics, but those terms didn't exist then. Uh, we were amongst the pioneers. We were amongst the pioneers in introducing the notion of a global executive MBA when Triumph was launched in 2001. Very few people were thinking along those lines. Now there are dozens of such programs. Stern is Stern launched an MS in Information Sciences jointly with the Quarant Institute in the 1990s. Another very um, innovative program, well ahead of its time, trying to link business and technology. So this is not new to Stern. It's not something we've been. We've, it's something we've been doing very well over a very long period of time. As is NYU, when we pioneered the notion of the global network university, the concept did not exist and still barely exists. NYU is really the only university with full footprints in Abu Dhabi and uh, and, and mm-hmm. in Shanghai, where we have amazing partners to work with. So there's a very long history of innovation at, at Stern. So in terms of the programs you mentioned, I want to preface this, first of all, with an observation. As a business school, there is no business school quite like Stern in this world. We know with 5,600 students, we are several times the size of Swarthmore College, which is an entire undergrad institution, uh, several times the size. So when you think about that, the size that we are in terms of our faculty, in terms of our students, our location in New York, it gives us a breadth and uh, nimbleness that very few universities can match in, in, in terms of the range of expertise we can command both within the school and outside in New York. So that enables us to innovate very rapidly to see where there is a sense of a new demand and to create a program around that demand. So, for example, shortly after the financial crisis in 2008, risk management became in in, in great demand. We launched a MS in risk management. It's an executive program that was very, very popular around the same time that we launched, uh, launched the business analytics program, I think a year or so earlier than that. So coming to the programs you just spoke about. We are universally recognized around the world as one of the strongest schools in the world in finance. In every ranking, every discussion, every casual mention of Stern evokes the image of finance. And that's truly spectacular. I think very few schools own a field the way we own finance. And it's something I'm particularly proud of also being a member of the finance department. I've both contributed in a very small way to it, but also been a huge beneficiary of that reflected glow of of, of finance. But it's very important to realize that we are not just a finance department with a business school attached to us. We are an outstanding business school with an exceptional finance department. So US News and World Report, for example, lists five of our academic departments in the top 10 and six of them in the top 13, which tells you that individual departments are thought of very highly apart from finance. But part of the problem of perception is that when one field is so dominant in people's mind, they think tend to think of Stern only as primarily that field. Oh, you're the finance school. We are not the finance school. We are an outstanding business school with an exceptional finance department, as I said. So one aspect of what we were doing was to try and focus light on other aspects of of Stern to do three things. Really, the idea was shine a spotlight on areas of incredible strength we have within the school and that we can access in New York City because of our location here 
Two, to draw in a new kind of student who would not normally have thought of applying to Stern. And three, to draw in a new kind of employer to benefit all our programs. Because the new programs are going to be very small in size. They are, you know, they are intentionally small because they're there to shine a spotlight on that strength to create buzz around that strength to benefit the flagship programs of the school, which are the full-time MBA, the undergrad program. Those are the main flagship programs on which our reputations depend. So that was some, some of the thinking that went into the fashion luxury pro, MBA and, 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 and the tech MBA. But it was not just internal thinking. It was a lot of discussion with industry, with alumni. So there were six months of meetings that I did with industry leaders in New York on the West Coast, with alumni on the West Coast. I did several dinners, several conversations. These are very, very serious, successful alumni. And we engaged with them and thought went into that. And fundamentally, as I said, there were several criteria that we used that it had to play to our strengths, academic strengths, it had to play to our location in New York City. It had to be relatively resource non-intensive in that it should be easy for us to expand into these areas. And these are not standalone programs, right? They're going to be merged in with the regular program. So they're going to be sitting with other students, taking similar courses and other things. So, mm -hmm. the, so you, you mentioned, you know, I think it's really important to understand kind of how you approach expanding the offering here at NYU. And it, it, it's interesting to hear, you know, how the role of business school was back when you first started, right? Which was, you know, at least at NYU was, you know, we're a feeder for, for Wall Street, right? So now that we're expanding into all these additional programs, right? All these different pathways that you can take, all these different career opportunities. Mm -hmm. Just taking a step back, how do you think the role of business school is changing from when you started to, to where it is today and then, and then where, where you want to take it going forward? That's uh, an outstanding question. I think it's very difficult to answer that in a very sh uh, in a very succinct manner. But let me try this. The MBA started out in the 1960s, 70s. I would say even up to the early 80s, it was a relatively exotic degree that a very that very few people went for. And then more and more MBA programs started around the country. I think ours dates back to 1982, if I remember right, our full-time MBA. Mm -hmm. We had a part-time MBA well before that. Um, but MBA programs suddenly became very popular. The MBA got commoditized. Everybody was hiring MBAs. The market started booming. And then as happens with most, most markets, there's more, I would say, thought that goes into the MBA itself because a lot of hiring started shifting towards the undergrad side. The sales and trading jobs, for example, which used to be predominantly MBA jobs, started moving on Wall Street towards the undergrad level. The nature of the job market changed, and uh, so the nature of the MBA has also changed, both from our perspective, but also from the perspective of business schools in general. So, for example, the MBA was, when it was created in 1916 by Harvard University, it was essentially thought of as a general management degree, that you had specialists in finance and you had specialists in sales and marketing and you know, whatever else, but you needed somebody who could take an overall perspective of the company. So, general management was really the degree. At most business schools today, very few students go into general management. When you look at who was employing MBA students in the from the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, the industrial conglomerates, the the General Electric, the United Technologies, the General Motors, you know, they were most students today at the top business schools want to go into finance, want to go into consulting, private equity, become entrepreneurs. But the whole general management notion itself has changed. You know, what you need to know, what you, the purpose for coming to an MBA has changed. And MBA programs have changed alongside, even though it's not publicly acknowledged that general management, which was the, the focus of the breadth, is now being accompanied by depth. I always used to contrast it to an, like a degree like the MS, which focuses on one subject in depth. So an MS in finance or an MS in marketing would look at one subject in some depth. 
an MBA tries to look at breadth and some amount of depth through the second year electives and other things. But now that, that depth has become a more important part of the MBA. So the MBA experience ebbs and flows in time. It's influenced mm-hmm. by world events and the market. And, you know, you spoke about some of those uh, just now. And, you know, when I think of a defining moment in our lifetimes, you know, we think of the financial collapse that, mm-hmm. um, you know, by and large, a lot of it may have stemmed from, uh, you know, a few blocks away down in Wall Street. Mm-hmm. And I'd be curious to get your thoughts on, you know, how our education may have changed here at Stern, you know, thinking through some of the things that led up to the financial collapse, where we are today, and then just the responsibility of business schools at large uh, to try to, one, be more mindful of the world that we're operating in, uh, but then two, like how to prevent, you know, things like this from happening again. And I'd be super curious to get your thoughts on all of that. Okay, to the first question, the financial crisis, of course, affected a lot of things. Um, It affected higher education very generally. The Years leading up to the to the financial crisis, despite the blip in 2000, 2001, despite the blip in 92, more or less since the 82, 84 recession ended, we had a period of fairly significant growth. And part of that growth, the industrial sector was doing well, financial sector was doing very well, and support services like law, like legal services were booming. The financial crisis gave pause to a number of different activities in the economy. So, for example, it was not only business schools, it was law schools got very badly affected, medical schools. People started rethinking their whole future plans in more detail. So, when you grow up in an era where things have been doing well for 15, 20 years with occasional blips, I'm, I'm just speculating out here. I think there's a mindset that that's how things are going to be. When you know, sure. that, And then when an enormous disruption occurs like happened in 2008... There's a tendency to start revising, is this the new normal? Is this the world that, you know, and the period from 2008 to today has been unusual in so many ways that one can't, period of low, extraordinarily low interest rates, for example. So it's changed the whole mindset with which people approach higher education. It's also forced business schools to take a closer look at themselves. Business schools like law schools were hit across the board with a drop in applications the top business schools were hit much less than the than, than lower ranked schools, but some lower ranked schools were almost wiped out by by not getting any applications, and that happened to law schools also. But it prompted professional schools across the board to start taking a look at exactly what they were doing, how they were doing it, were they still adding the kind of value that they wanted to add, and so on. I'm not suggesting in any way that we were being lazy about doing these things. As I said, we were always an innovative school much earlier, but there was a very healthy demand from certain sectors of the economy that were just flowing our way. And it was relatively easy for us to continue feeding that demand. When the demand started, showed signs of weakening and perhaps even drying up for a short period of time, one had to think about where economic growth was going to come from, where, what sectors of the economy were going to be to us, what finance has been for the last 25 years, and how we position ourselves best to take advantage of those opportunities that are going to present. So I've always believed in this idea that every challenge is an opportunity that is just waiting to be exploited. The growth in technology presented us with such an opportunity. We are a school with the largest collection of, uh, one of the largest at least, collections of data scientists and computer scientists in the US. Very, very well-regarded people. We are located in New York, which has become a major tech hub. Everything seemed to be falling in line for us to get and move into that area the same way we dominate in finance. We don't want to lose our strength in finance, but we want to simultaneously build our strength to cater to. The financial sector is never going to die in importance. You know, the importance of finance is always going to remain. But we want to 
keep innovating ourselves to stay relevant to to as many sectors as we can on an ongoing basis. So to your question about what is the responsibility of business schools, primarily it's to produce people who can lead the change, who are not intimidated by change, and not just people who can adjust to the change, but people who can actually lead the change. Is there a moral responsibility there as well? I think to, to Stephen's question, right, you know, after you go through something like that, right, is there is there an obligation obligation of an educational institution like this one to prepare its students with a moral compass, right? Or, or to say, you know, this is the proper way to do business, or this is kind of where you draw the line from an ethical standpoint. Is, is that influence kind of the curriculum and the way that you approach kind of the student experience here at NYU? I think that is an enormously important, we state it often, but I think we don't give it as much emphasis as we should. The job is not just to produce people who can lead change, but who can do so ethically. I think the word ethics sometimes has been overused to the point that if you offer a course around business ethics, people roll their eyes and then they don't don't register mm. for the course or they come and don't listen. But that's because I think traditionally business schools have had a habit of siloizing the discussion of ethics in, in some way, whereas really it should be an integrated part of not only coursework, but an integrated part of thinking about business. So some of the ways... Um, mm. what, do you, what do you mean by that? In almost everything we do, sometimes on an everyday in an everyday basis, sometimes on a more significant basis, we are making ethical choices all the time. Sometimes we don't even recognize we're making choices. But I'll give you one simple example that I, that somebody else was talking to me about. I can't uh, mention names on this, but he was this is a, some one a very very successful alumnus of ours who told me about how early in his career when he started a company, he'd received an offer about the company and he'd given his word that he wouldn't. That somebody said, like, wait two weeks, I want to evaluate your company, and then I want to tell you whether I want to invest in it or not. So he gave the word that he wouldn't. The very next day as it happens, somebody came up with an incredible offer with a three-day time span. And they said, accept it or it. So he said, I was faced with a very simple choice. I either had to break my word to the person to whom I'd said it, wait two weeks, or I had to break my word to my employees because I had told them I would look after them, and here was an amazing offer that would have benefited my entire group of employees. So what happened? I, you know, since that case might actually be taught at Stern at some point because I've invited this uh, person here to deliver a guest Is lecture. Is it a case study? It's an amazing case study. Um, right. So I can't, I'm not going to tell you what happened in it or, 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 or anything else. You'll have else. to take the class. <laughs> yeah, right. but, no, you will love the class. This is an amazing, this is a person who's also been an amazing instructor at one of the leading business schools in the world. So he teaches on the side. He's, he's, a, you know, he's been a very successful professional. But so simple things like that lead you to dilemmas on to whom is your word more important, right? And it's these are kind of ethical dilemmas that have sometimes no clear resolution. We always tend to think in ethics of giving us black and white answers to questions. Mm. This is right, this is wrong. But usually that's not the case. What you want to do is help people think through gray areas. And okay, I have a responsibility. In my own case, for example, I have a responsibility to the school. I have a responsibility to my colleagues. And sometimes the two might might come in conflict. I might want to help out my colleagues in some way, but it doesn't obviously benefit the school or something. And I have to, you have to make these choices mm -hmm. all the time. There are always gray areas in what you're doing. Absolutely. And I think that's a great segue to your role as dean. So mm -hmm. you were uh, announced beginning this year. So I think what would be helpful is just to understand how you view your role. Like, wh what is it that you do? You know, as I've, I, as I've mentioned on a few occasions, uh, a dean is thought, thought of sometimes as the CEO of an organization, but it's not like a corporate job at all. Um, the difference here largely is the very large number of stakeholders, all of whom 
correctly perceive that they have a very important stake in the future of the school and in very many different ways from very many different perspectives. From undergraduate students to MBA students to part-time MBAs to exec MBAs, from our faculty to the overseers, from the donors to the trustees, from the university to other schools in the university to other business schools around the country. There's a, there's a very large number of constituencies you're talking to all the time. They don't expectations of what they would like to see the school do and how and everything. The common theme to all of that is everybody wants the school to succeed. Everybody wants it to be an amazing, outstanding business school. We've done, an, we've done a terrific job over the last few decades, but obviously we can do a lot better and we're going to try and do better. We're going to continuously try to improve what we're doing and how we're doing. That's the common theme. Now, what people mean by doing better, people have different views. Like, from a donor or university standpoint, it could be something as simple as fundraising. From the university standpoint, it could be looking at the school finances. From the uh, uh, student standpoint, it could be looking at rankings and how we are doing in the rankings. That's especially from the alumni standpoint. From student standpoint, it could be placements this year and how well our students are placing. Every one of these jobs is important to me. When I talk to employers, I wear a different hat from when I talk to alumni. When I talk to donors, I wear a different hat when I talk to trustees, when I talk to the university. The common theme to all of that is everybody views me, depending whatever activity it is they are viewing as primary, they view me as the person responsible for it. And that is my responsibility. The so buck stops with you. The buck stops with me. So that's part of the responsibility you take on. Sometimes you're uh, surprised at your own chutzpah, but you know that you are. <laughs> you know. Fortunately, you have a rich background in working in the organization and you have a, a unique perspective as a professor. And, you know, as you're juggling all these stakeholders, all the ones you just listed, you know, how do you define your vision as the dean? As you said, the, the, the buck does stop with you. And so where do you kind of grab the reins and say, this is the direction we're going to go. This is the vision I have for this university or for this uh, school. Um, so over the, the last three months, especially the conversations I've been having with these different stakeholders, the eight or nine, ten groups that I listed, have been teaching me a lot about the way different people view the school. And you want to take all those views into account when you formulate a strategy. So I'm, what I'm not going to talk to you about here is I need to take some time off and think through a broader way to frame the strategies. But there are clearly some priorities, partly from the fact that I've already been here 22 years. I've been in charge of the MBA programs for the last two years. There are some priorities, I think, that are uppermost in my mind always when I, when I think of the school. And any strategy we'll do will incorporate all of these in some important way. One of those is academic relevance, academic innovation, academic nimbleness, being quick to recognize what is important in the marketplace for our students and being quick to innovate, introduce courses, programs, specializations, what have you. Almost all our experimentation always starts in the uh, full-time MBA program where we try out our ideas because that is our flagship program. But sooner or later, they percolate to every one, of our, every one of our programs. And successful ideas from other programs, we bring into every program. So everything affects the whole school. That we want to continue. As I said, this is not something new from the introduction of business analytics a decade ago and risk management programs a decade ago to the introduction of the tech MBA more recently. Something we want to continue doing. Part of doing that is that you gauge the success in terms of how well your students are getting placed, how well your... Uh, perceptions are doing, the perception of you as a school is doing, how well your rankings are doing, all of these are very, very important ways of gauging whether what you're doing is correct. The new firms you're bringing in as employers, all of those things. So we keep an eye on 
several metrics to gauge the success of the innovation that we're doing and how well it's working. So that's that will remain on the academic side an unambiguous priority. We are always looking at trying to get in the best quality of students we can, the best composition of students we can. Fundraising, as I said, will remain a top priority for the school because we are not a rich university. We're just a clever university in the way we use money. <laughs> um, so all of these priorities will remain, many of which I've spoken about. So you're a busy guy. And, you know, we've been talking shop all day. And I'm, I think we're curious, you know, what does the dean of NYU Stern do for fun? Whether he, you know, I imagine there are a few perks of the job here on school, but, you know, both on campus and off campus in the city. You know, what do you get? What do you do to take some time for yourself? So I feel like saying fun. What is that? You know, like, <laughs> seems to me I remember it from a decade ago. No, I seriously, I mean, you know, right now the job itself is a lot of fun because uh, and I, ex I expect it to continue being so because I'm learning a lot about what it is that I'm doing. I've been here 22 years and you think you know it all. And then you realize that people are viewing the school from very different perspectives. You learn a lot from listening to them. For downtime, what do I do to get my mind off? So usually my, my days run from about 9 to 7 and then I go home and answer emails because you don't answer emails right away. People write back to you in two up. days. Yes. <laughs> you know, there's a tremendous amount of impatience in the world these days. So most of the time, I get maybe half a day off on the weekends. Uh, what do I do? I used to do a lot of reading. I still try and do some reading at night. I, I, you know, I try and do some reading before I go to sleep. I love socializing. I still love sports. My favorite sport has remained for most of the last half century has remained cricket. But I'm a major tennis fan. Who's I'd, your favorite tennis player? Oh, Roger Federer by a very, very long distance. I'm, <laughs> I'm very conventional in that. Well, it, it, you know, it's changed. In the 1970s, I worshipped Jimmy Connors and his two-handed backhand and his attitude on the court. When you're 15 years old, you like bad behavior on the court. You know, you, 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 you approve of it. Then you come to your 20s and you, you see, and then you come to your 30s and you disapprove of bad behavior. And Sampras was my ideal tennis player, a guy who hardly displayed emotion on the court. Then you go through the Sampras-Edberg era, then you come to the Federer era. It's, it's, you know, tennis has been like one of my constant loves. So they don't display a lot of emotion on the court. Do you display a lot of emotion watching them on the court? Oh, I was just going to come to that. At one point, I used to be a voracious fan of basketball and baseball. I was a big fan of the LA Lakers and the Atlanta Braves, the pitching rotation in the 90s. This was the era of Maddox and Clavin, of Smoltz, Avery. Yeah. They had an amazing, uh, you know. I used to watch almost every Braves game and almost any basketball game that I could, I could watch. And I was spending so much of my time getting emotional about what was going on on the court, you know. And there was one, the amount of emotional energy you waste on this is just incredible. I'm going to use the word waste. <laughs> <laughs> one day, I remember this was the year that 2000, uh, my God, which year was it? Two, uh, 2007, I think, when Roger Federer lost in the semifinals of the Australian Open to Marat Safin in a five-setter. I felt depressed for about a day or two. And then I remember asking myself, you know, Roger Federer doesn't know I'm even alive. <laughs> <laughs> Why am I spending so much time worrying about what happens to him? And that was, for me, the beginning of the change in my mindset. I stopped watching more sports. I Now when I watch sports, I actually enjoy it. Good. I don't mind people losing, not losing. You know, I just I just like it. I hear you. I hear you. I mean, I'm a big Roger Federer fan as well. But it's it's tough, especially like when you yell at the TV and you wake up <laughs> the dog. It's, it's bad news in the household, you know? It is. You mentioned reading is a big passion of yours. Is there any books that you're reading now? Are there any books that you would recommend to, to our listeners as, as being helpful to you along your career path? So like most people, I read more than um, one book at a time. Right? Literally at the same time? Or? No. <laughs> <I mean, laughs> yeah, one with my right eye, one with my left. <laughs> and 
No, I have, you know, it's it's what a friend of mine refers to as the cacophony of books on the bedside table. I uh, like that expression. Yeah, it's, it's a beautiful expression. I should send you the poem she wrote around it. So, you know, right now I'm reading um, one of Brian Greene's books on multiple universes. I'm reading Siddharth Mukherjee's book on the gene. I've read about, I'm about halfway through both of these books. I've just finished with In the Shadow of the Sword, which is a book by Tom Holland on the uh, origins of Islam. Mm. I think those are the three. Are these all nonfiction books? Yeah, I don't read any fiction. Just nonfiction, historical. Historical, and I I love, as I said, I used to love, I I don't read as much philosophy as I used to, but I used to love reading books on philosophy, history of science, philosophy of science, history books in general. I was never a big, there was a period in my teens and 20s when I read lots and lots of uh, novels, mostly the Russian novelists, some English novelists. For some reason, it died out in my late 20s, early 30s. I've not been a big novel reader since then. And do you feel like these books influence you even today? I think one is always amazed by human creativity in every mm-hmm. form. And many of these books, you know, like Simon Singh's book on the Big Bang and it's in the Origins of the Universe or the book of Brian Greens that I'm reading now, they are really in some way beautifully written as detective novels of, you know, you have this puzzle and you're trying to solve it. And of course... At the end, you don't find out who did it. You know, it was not the butler. You still have like lots of uncertainty. It was not the butler. And you know, and but it's an amazing idea of how human ideas evolve over time and how uh, paradigms evolve. So yes, at some level, it, it it changes the way you think about everything. I'm going to just leave you with one thought. Just think about this: a human being standing in the earth in in the 16th, 17th century says, looks at the stars and says, the same laws of physics operate in those stars that operate here. Now, what an amazing leap of faith it takes to make that right it's uh, you know to me it's amazing that people were even even able to make such kind of leaps of faith and then try to understand the world of the universe using the idea that a common set of laws operates in this whole universe mm. that's fascinating mm-hmm. and so you know as we you know part of the stern community you know all the programs you mentioned earlier as we go off into the world and pursue our the things that interest us intellectually and from a professional background you know, as your role of dean, you know, what would what would you like us to think about, you know, as our role in the world and, you know, the impact that we can have? And, you know, maybe, you know, how can this university better prepare us uh, in those pursuits? So I think really, you know, my I remember when my daughter was much younger, I lost my wife to cancer six years ago. So I've been a single parent for some time. And when my daughter was, she's now a junior at college, but I was when I was giving her a little bit of advice on life, you know, this included, you know, boyfriends and, you know, everything else. And I was telling her the number one criteria in any human being, don't look at their interests, don't look at this, don't look at their views on anything, look at one thing, are they good human beings? If the answer to that is yes, then everything else becomes relevant. If the answer to that is no, nothing else is relevant. It's really what you want of your students, right? They all represent Stern proudly by being good human beings. And good human beings in lots of ways, helping the community, helping stakeholders in your organizations. And I have to mention this, giving back to the educational institutions you were at, including Stern. Education is the single biggest force we have in this world for advancement of the individual, of society, of communities. Over the years, we've tended to underplay the importance of education in lots of ways by focusing on, I think, issues that are less, somewhat less relevant. And I think Supporting various ways of advancing the country, advancing the community, advancing society. This is very, very important. So if if I had one message, it would be do well by all means, 
but do good. I think that's a great message to end the podcast on. What do you think, Justin? Absolutely. A very powerful message. Dean, thank you so much for being here. It was wonderful to get to talk to you. And we hope we can come have you come back on the podcast in the future. I think given the length of answers that I give, I don't think you're going to be calling me back in a hurry. But, <laughs> but I'll be delighted to come back anytime. Well, thank you for taking okay. the time. And, thank you. And, and hopefully you'll get to enjoy the podcast uh, in the middle of all the craziness that you oh, have I'm, in your I'm life. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you very Great. much. Thank you. Wonderful.